fans and welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Visions, the show within Let Me Tell You Something, in which myself, Lorcan Mullen, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Silent Cross, discuss a TV show, a film, a mini-series, an epic narrative, some sort of visual entertainment based around, inspired by, or set within the world of professional wrestling. Simon, what is... It's probably the most prestigious one we've picked so far. It's certainly the best one as far as quality goes. Uh, but maybe not necessarily as wrestling-informed. I don't know. Wrestling um, wrestling heavy. It's less wrestling heavy, maybe, than the other ones. Mm. What are we talking about today, Simon? We're talking about season one of Glow on Netflix. With Alison Brie as the main star. In this world, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And I will not be bullied into submission. You're reading the man's part. Oh, God. Would you like to start over? Yes, I would. I will not be bullied into submission. Sorry to interrupt. Your wife is online, too. I'm interested in real parts. Got $83 in my bank account, and I don't know if I can pay my gas bill. There's an audition. They're looking for unconventional women, whatever that means. Hello, ladies. I'm Sam Sylvia, and this is Glow. Sorry, what's Glow? Gorgeous ladies of wrestling. Are you hiring actors to play wrestlers, or are we the wrestlers? Go! Yes. Christ. Fucking actresses. Okay, I want you to meet the star of GLOW, Debbie Egan. Are you insane? Why is she here? She's the alpha and you're the omega. Submit. She might kill you. This is Sebastian Howard, our producer. This is my first Hollywood party. There are drugs in the fucking robot. Thank you. Wrestling is about type. You're a sexy party girl. You're an Arab. You mean stereotype. Yes, bingo, exactly. You're a big black girl. The fuck you say? Oh. Lady wrestling. I get it. Women can do anything men do. Blah, blah, blah. How'd that look? I got chills. Yeah, you would. So you think I got funny? We're empowered. We're the heroes. You want the show to happen. This is the only place I get to do what I want to do. People respect me here. We got to shoot this thing in like five weeks. This could either feel dinky or it could feel epic. So let's give them what? Tits! Storytelling. Storytelling. This is about justice. This is about holding on to what's ours. I don't really know a lot of the other like supporting cast names. I hadn't seen a lot of them before this. It was through the first time around I watched this that I saw one of the other big names attached to this, Mark Maron. Yes, Mark Maron, who before then was known primarily for his podcast, WTF, a real pioneer in the world of podcasting. I, that was one that I listened to on a regular basis at the time. Didn't he have Obama on? Yeah, he's had Obama. Well, you can't really top that, but he's had 
other like you got Keith Richards on. It was with Keith Richards that he smoked his first cigarette in like 10, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Keith will do that to us, man. But yeah, Mark Maron's not like he's not an actor with a lot of a long CV. But if there's ever been a perfect casting in a role, I think Mark Maron in this show is one of them. It's funny that you say that Alison Brie is the star of it, and I suppose she is more than anyone. She was the one definitely. At least to us with the biggest name going in because of her work on Community and Mad Men. But also, like, anyone who'd been a fan of Nurse Jackie would have been a fan of Betty Gilpin, who's sort of the second co-lead of the show, I suppose, along with Mark Maron. And there's an ensemble. There's people that have been in various things. Obviously, I was surprised a couple of episodes in to realise that that was Kate Nash yep. playing one of the characters in the show. Also, Ellen Wong, who would be otherwise known as Knives Chow in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. She's also in the show as a fortune cookie. But this whole thing is is a curious one where it's one of those ones where it's sort of based on a true story, but not. Insofar as there was a wrestling promotion in the mid-80s that was based around an entire ensemble of women, and they weren't trained wrestlers going into it. Mm. And it did have a more tongue-in-cheek presentation. And it was essentially a cash-in on the sudden explosion of wrestling popularity in the mid 80s gotta go where the money is though don't you (laughs) yep but that's pretty much where the similarities end for the most part insofar as there's not a like for like character there is not a person that alison brie is playing that really was a failing actor who had an affair well not really had an affair but slept with the partner of her best friend the husband of her best friend sorry on two separate occasions yeah and then they ended up being the top heel and face of a new wrestling promotion. But what there was around 2012 was there was a documentary that came out called Glow, the the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, a documentary about the original promotion. And it was on Netflix. And I do remember watching it before the TV series started. And I think we'd hoped that if we could have found a copy, we would have talked about that maybe first and then done this season one episode as the follow-up. We weren't able to get our hands on it. If we ever do get it then we'll probably do an episode about it it's disappeared behind one of those like up and coming like emerging streaming services that, that, that maybe i don't know you get to rent it there's so much too, too much choice with streaming but i'm not going to rant about that the scary thing though as well with streaming and the streaming culture is that there is stuff that might just disappear i mean stuff always disappears from each one so because there were certain films that were never made into vhs mm. certain films released on vhs that never made it to dvd a lot of films that went to dvd that haven't made it onto blu-ray or or anything and if they're not picked up by a streaming service then your chances of getting a hold of it are increasingly threadbare it's, it's currently because of where it's situated with who's got the rights to it like it's almost impossible to get your hands on legally on a copy of Kevin Smith's Dogma, for example. Mm. And films like this documentary can very easily go down the wayside. And, and as we've seen with HBO Max now, their new owners, Discovery, Warner Brothers, cost-cutting. So films that were made for that service and that service alone, like the Seth Rogen film and American Pickle, have now been taken off the service. And there was no physical DVD Blu-ray release made of that film. God. So right now, I don't think it's genuinely possible to get your hands legally on a film that was only filmed and came out like two or three years ago. I was going to say, I saw American Pickle in the cinema and it sounds like when I describe this in like 10 years time, people will look at me like I'm having a fever dream. 
And if Netflix ever goes away, and that's the weird thing about Netflix, because, like, I would say this might be my favourite Netflix original, but I haven't watched that many, and the thing is, if it's not a hit the first time around, it very easily falls into the the archives. It's like somehow Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, unless you're doing a, a specific search for it in five, six years' time, unless there are people championing it, something like Glow might not be getting watched by anyone at a certain point, especially if Netflix were to cease to exist, which is more than possible, the amount of money that they've spent compared to the amount of money they've made, somehow, something as huge as Netflix could end up going out of business at some point, and then, you know, all their original programming's up for grabs, but what if someone doesn't want to buy Glow, you know? Mm, That'd be chum in the water, that. Yeah. The big tragedy of Glow, obviously, which I think we'll probably talk more about when we do season three, because I definitely want to do the other two seasons that were made of this show. Yeah. But the great tragedy is that it was cancelled before its time. I mean, literally, they were in production of the final season, what was going to be season four, the final season. They apparently completed the first episode, and then the pandemic happened, lockdown occurred, and so so everything was put on hiatus, and it was thought a show based around wrestling would be the hardest thing to film in COVID-secure conditions that it was viable to do. Yeah, yeah. And you'd also need a large number of extras, I suppose, for the crowds. But it still seems bullshit to me that now they can't pick it up. You know, it's only three years since that. But then they said, oh, by the time that comes out, then the last season was on in 2018 or 2019. Who's going to remember? Well, you've got it on the fucking streaming service. It's literally, before you watch season four, episode one, you will just have to click up on your remote. Yeah. And there's season three, episode ten. So that excuse sounds like bullshit to me. Uh, It could well be that just everyone's moved on. It's like, po- well, that's the thing. You, like you do a show like this, especially the people involved, the writers and Betty Gilpin and Alison Brie. Yeah, they're all definitely much busier now. I would have thought because of the extra stature that they've got. Particularly Betty Gilpin. She also was in a film that caused a lot of controversy last year or the year before, and that was also delayed a lot when it came out. It was like a sort of Get Out esque social satire as a thriller. All right. Where it was a bunch of right-wing conservatives all dropped into the middle of nowhere and they're just set off against each other to kill each other. Oh, I remember hearing about this. Yeah. And she really plays the action heroine fantastically. Yeah. When I watched that, I was like, well, you know, there's probably a Marvel thing of some description coming her way. Mm. Uh, She might have been an interesting pick for She-Hulk, actually, if they hadn't gone with... um... Although it would have been a very different kind of energy because... Her whole thing is... Well, I mean, in the show, it's this idea of her being like this all-American idol. Yeah. To get to the show itself, what's fascinating always with these things is discussing what wrestling is being used for. What what is being used as a... Is it used as a background? Is it being used as a central metaphor, as a central theme of what they're doing? Mm. And I think that what they're using wrestling for in this is to make a commentary both on the portrayal of women's bodies, but also specifically the 1980s vision of womanhood of identities of nationalities as well and also as a reaction to the second wave of feminism that took place in the 70s or maybe the third wave i I can never keep track of my waves of feminism you know symbolized immediately by the first scene of the show which is alison brie auditioning for a role very passionately playing this figure of power authority. Dressed in a very Thatcher-esque power suit. Yes. 
which she brings back in the penultimate episode when they have to... When the gate crash bashes mum's fundraiser, yeah. Team Wad, everyone, Team Wad. And she then realises that she's been reading the male role and then just has to say the female role, which is, like, Mr. Stevens is online too. Yeah. <laughs> Something along those lines. That symbolised what the role of a woman still was in these sort of roles. Because it seems like it's some sort of um, high-profile glamour soap opera, which would have been popular in that era, you know, yeah. the dynasties and the Dallases and the like. Yeah, and it's the subsequent scene which really, like, shows throughout the whole series how Ruth sort of finds her role, um, Alison Bree's character, because the casting director, when she's accosted by Ruth in the toilet, is like, look, I bring you in because directors tell me I want someone real, I want someone authentic. So I bring you in to show that they don't want that. They, they, they want something else. So it's very much you don't fit into what you want to be. Which is a problem, really, on a realistic front, because uh, no woman who looks like Alison Brie is conventional. <laughs> Really. But they do dress her down because I think it's a case of Alison Brie's character does not see herself like that. She is a slightly upper self artiste. Yes. You kind of feel like she would have been more at home if she'd have gone to New York and tried to be part of the theatre scene Mm. rather than coming to Los Angeles where it's so much more superficial vanity and so on. I don't know if they, they ever explain that in later episodes or later seasons why she went to Los Angeles to pursue a TV career or a movie career over um, I don't know. But she's someone with a lot of energy and a lot of creativity and that's not what they're looking for. As they say, she's got ideas. Yeah. She believes that she should do th- those sort of roles, whereas instead of being happy with the one-line role, that she mm. sees that and her instincts are that that means... That's the character I should be going for. That's the character I want to be playing. That links to her similarities with Debbie's character. Not Debbie's character, Debbie, played by Betty Gilpin. I do apologise. Because the reason she ended up in her character on the soap... I can't remember the name of the soap she was on. Ends up in a coma is because she puts forward her ideas on where she wants a character to go. And it's very much, you two aren't here to do that. You're meant to fit into this mould we've created for what a woman should be in your respective roles, be it receptionist, be it soap actor. Mm-hmm. And you can see her being that debutante kind of woman. She has that glamour to her with the blonde hair. And it's so funny because so many people just sort of nonchalantly address the fact that she has big breasts. Yeah. And that's a big selling point for her. <laughs> But it's like, and even um, at one point, Awesome Kong does grab them, I think, when they're doing their in-ring promos. But that also gets me to the other reason, the other thing that I think they do really well with what wrestling is and how wrestling is presented, is that wrestling is such a simplistic morality tale. Yeah. That there is a heel and there is a face, and the the most easiest ways they do it in the show is by playing them up to stereotypes. Mm. Benefit Queen, which is a very 80s symbol... A Russian, a Chinese woman, uh, an Arabian terrorist, etc., etc. Yeah, played by an Indian woman. Yeah. And what the key character dynamic, the relationship is as well, is that we see Alison Brie do 
a heelish move in real life in having sex with her best friend's husband. And that is a bad act. But the rest of the show is kind of showing that she is not inherently a heel in in life. You know, she's not one of life's heels. And what they're pointing out is the ambiguity of morality in the real life compared to the very simple moral stories being told, not just in wrestling, but in the culture, Mm. that Reagan Americana culture. The fantastic line that they have Betty Gilpin's character say when she comes out as Liberty Bell is, uh, my favourite three Americans are Ronald Reagan, Larry Bird and Jesus Jesus Christ. Christ. That's an odd dinner party. (laughs) Yeah, and also the funny thing behind that as well, saying Larry Bird, the great white hope of basketball. Yeah. At the time when basketball was starting to become increasingly dominated by black athletes, and in particular at that time, Magic Johnson. But really, Larry Bird is the last time that there was a in theory the best basketball player in the country was a, a white american yeah i know there have been other ones since then like nash and uh, dirk nowitzki and so on and oh but... what's the name of the one in last dance as well oh uh the the coach the guy who's now the coach for the yeah yeah i know what you mean but he's like isn't he nash possibly no i might be wrong but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that doesn't matter you'll have googled it by now listeners <laughs> yeah but or just been yelling at us if you're one of the Americans. <laughs> Both things are equally possible. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And also, I think that really plays up to the flaws. So it's like, Alison Brie is supposed to be the heel, but we see so many of her good qualities. She is compassionate to the point that she can be a bit of a walkover. She, yeah. she does care about people. She tries to help people. And she does feel she's racked with so much guilt. But at the same time, you see in Betty Gilpin's character her sort of selfish nature they they point out that she's not a naturally maternalistic person she doesn't yeah know how to be a mother and it's not being judgmental to her it's just pointing out that she's in an awkward situation but it's like i i one thing i realized when i rewatched it the set the first episode this time was that when they're driving home when she's driving Alison Brie home I'm so terrible with character names, so I'm mostly going to go with the actors for the most part. Yeah. She just offhandedly makes a dig at her husband's weight. Yeah. And so you can see that it's an unhappy marriage, and she, if she's not saying nice things to him, not necessarily saying them to his face, she's saying it behind his back. And at another point, he points out that, like, the six weeks she didn't say or touch. 42 days. And then she goes, well, I just had a baby. And when he when he delivers, well, this was before Randy, and you can just see her like, oh, yeah. But she does enjoy, I think, having that moral high ground over. Well, uh, enjoys might not be the might not might not be the way to describe it, but she she doesn't want to leave that moral high ground, as she can hold that over Alison Brie, and she kind of wants her every time that they're getting something close to rekindling their friendship she will always write to the final scene of the final episode snap it back to you i still can't forgive you yeah we're not there yet yeah and so it's like you haven't turned face in my mind or something along those yeah, lines I, I i do see it i do see like a slight variation to that i, I think she enjoys being valued again mm. she doesn't feel valued in her marriage which it turns out she's as guilty as the same thing and as she feels is happening to her and now she's back in a acting role 
because she, she views it as acting before she views it as wrestling. She feels appreciated again. She feels valued again. And her unhappiness stems in, in her marriage, stems from the fact that this role was thrust upon her, whereas now she's choosing this role. This, this is hers. And she was being sought out for it. Mark Maron's character is like goes to her house, follows her, makes lies to her to get her to certain places. But it was like I did that so that I could keep you. Yeah. And it is funny how he treats different people within the show. Like he's really down on Alison Brie, partly because he's he, he knows these people. He's dealt with these kind of actors before. Mm. He's dealt with the the eager beaver type A character that Alison Brie is that wants to be involved in everything and is always coming up with ideas and everything and he kind of wants to you can argue it's negging you can argue it unfair treatment of her but he also maybe thinks that she's got ideas above her station and she's not necessarily uh the you know and he also you know first episode he finds out that she genuinely did sleep with her best friend's yeah fella so he's kind of like you know, you're not the you're not Miss High and Mighty that you presented yourself as going in. That you're above this. Yeah. Whereas he knows with with Betty Gilpin's character that that's his star, and he kind of treats her more with kid gloves until the final episode where he essentially double crosses her, does a does a Montreal on her. <laughs> well, the they're, they're both unhappy with each other at that point for different yeah. reasons. Yeah, yeah, because she bailed on them at one point, and then... but, but she she feels that he bailed on them so it's like well if you're not taking this seriously yeah my marriage has a chance of being saved i'm going to focus on that this isn't a spin-off from but it involves a lot of the same creative team as orange is the new black which was the first mm. really big original hit that netflix had they they brought back arrested development and they remade House of Cards for an American audience with Kevin Spacey. And Breaking Bad wasn't theirs, but they used it to launch their platform, really. Yeah, but as far as original programming, Orange is the New Black was the first thing that was kind of a sleeper hit, where it didn't get a big, you know, the biggest star in the show going in was probably Katie Mulgrew, and it took me two or three episodes of watching it to realise that that was Captain Janeway yeah. as the Russian character in the show. And what made it obviously unique was that it was a presentation of a mainly female ensemble in an environment that has its genre past, but never in this way. And I always thought that the key thing was right at the start, the, the opening montage sequences, is that these just these eyes of women, but they're not all heavily made up. They're, they're old, they're weary, they're, yeah. they're, they're blotched. They're, and it's just saying, think of all these people. And it's all these women and all these characters and all these actors that very often didn't get these kind of opportunities mm. to be portrayed on screen. If there were shows and films back from the 70s, 80s, exploitation era about women in prison, they were all, you know... Heavily made up. Shower scenes, cat fights, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. And this was a subversion of that genre. So similarly... They're taking the 80s trappings of, like, soap operas and wrestling and the heavily made-up women that were being presented on Glow and, and looking at the people underneath it. Yeah. And that it allows for a much more wider, eccentric ensemble. Because that was how Glow did cast, to be fair. It wasn't just filled up with glamorous women. There were unusual, you don't want to say freak show characters, but there was, like, a, a version of Machu Picchu. There was a version, there was a character called um matilda the hun like larger women were in it unusual women women are very very tall women you know all yeah. sorts of different they more pushed the glamorous attractive ones but yeah. there was it was a wacky ensemble 
And this is what allows 12 women of, of varying ethnicities as well. That wasn't necessarily being presented as much in the 80s. But mm. because they could play on stereotypes at that time, then it's the people underneath those stereotypes that we're getting to see in the reflective, revised, looking back on it 30, 40 years from, from when it was. Like Beirut, she like, she like studies all the time. She's, she's a loving granddaughter. Uh, Britannica, Kate Nash... Uh, she she genuinely cares for Sam, and it's Sam's inability to trust his predepositions over what actresses are like, which ultimately costs their relationship towards the end of the season. But when you mention like the glamorous um, and how that's like sort of like been tilted on, really in this, the rich characters in this show are all arseholes. But in different ways. One's a lovable arsehole because he's, he's, he's just a dumb idiot who's trying to make something he loves but doesn't really realise how the world works. And his mum is a grade A arsehole but does eventually see that her son is actually trying to do something and does relent and eventually like gives them the uh, venue for which they can actually film the first episode which is the crescendo of the series. Yeah, I mean his mum's the visual definition of a wasp. Yes, uh, not in the literal way, in the acronym, in the acronym way. Yeah, <laughs> um, the world's and, not ready for a B movie spinoff. You know that, right? <laughs> n- no, and it's funny watching um, watching this conceit, not conceited, but this spoiled rich kid using his funds to pay for a wrestling promotion. Yeah, and he's filled with ideas, but also drugs, is a manic, <laughs> co- coked out. <laughs> you know. <laughs> guy who can be a bit flaky yeah it's funny seeing certain parallels today uh-huh. although his character doesn't take the creative reins of it until he realizes that mark maron's character doesn't really want to do a wrestling show yes because what's funny with mark maron's character is where again the, the, i think they do a really good sense of not just making it about the 80s but making about figures from the 60s and 70s and how they were reacting and having to deal with the 80s. Mm. Mark Maron comes from this B-movie world. He was this, essentially this Roger Corman-type figure yeah. that makes these B-movies but uses... They mention at one point, like, he fathers one of the characters that turns up in this episode. He was kicked out of a Black Panther rally. Yeah. <laughs> So he's got that rebel spirit past. He's probably quite similar to like Robert Downey Jr.'s father, who was making these sort of, you know, um, anti-authority alternative films in the sixties yeah. and seventies, but doing it under the veneer of a B movie, you know, like Aliens and Apocalyptic Wastelands, etc. Time and travel, the, yeah. And they said that the big problem that Roger Corman and those guys had was in nineteen seventy-five. And 1977, the biggest films that came out were a shark movie and a space adventure. (laughs) And he said, suddenly, the studios that were making all the A movies started making the B movies, but with the budget of A movies. Yeah. And so we couldn't compete with them anymore. So that's why Mark Merrin can't get these movies made necessarily, because especially since it wasn't also this is also the VHS era and the summer blockbuster era mm. that those sort of films are now being made with big budgets and ambition yeah he can't make them for a million dollars anymore it's a lot harder to make them uh, and so he's looking for work anywhere that he can get it and so now he's finding it through this TV series 
and he wants to tell his stories and he wants to make his satirical ironic observations you know he argues that the the benefits queen is an ironic distillation but it's like it's not uh, well maybe in his eyes it is but it's not how the audience perceives it yeah it's like well i guess it's sort of similar to there you know people who watch starship troopers and don't get that it's subversive or watch yeah. fight club and don't get that it's subversive mm. or watch rope well you know he's he's obviously I, like... I heard someone recently say um he knows people that um when they watch the sopranos they fast forward through the therapy scenes it's like, well, you're missing the whole bloody point then. I've not even watched The Sopranos, and I know that that's part of the point. <laughs> well, I think it's just, there is that sleazy cashing element to him. Like, he's saying something, but he also knows, like, um, he knows the B-movie dynamics. Again, he's one of the ones that will say, well, of course I want to hire her. She's blonde, and she's got big boobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like Russ Meyer. He's, like, he's, he's a Russ Meyer-esque figure as well in that regard. And there was a lot of Russ Meyer campiness to the glow show itself. Like, all the characters do very bad, very basic mid-80s rapping uh, yeah. for their, to describe who their characters are. And it's funny, actually, because in the mid-2000s, or the late 2000s, I think it was, there was an attempt to do another glow called Wrestlicious. Oh, God. <laughs> which had Jimmy Hart as the creative voice behind it, and it was being financed by this young guy who'd won the lottery. <laughs> uh, and he lost, like, all his money. Ah! Oh. But they did literally do, like, a... You know, they were all broad characters, and they all did rapping introductions. And one of the people in it was uh, pre-TNA Lacey Von Eric. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, all I ever saw was, like, the video introduction, where they're going, Wrestlicious, um, Lacey Von Eric, you know the name. My family's in the Hall of Fame, etc., etc. Oh, it's weird because we've 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 talked all about like the dramatic elements about this, but we haven't talked about how wrestling's portrayed in this. And it's not because we don't want to, but because this show is different to some of the stuff we've talked about, where wrestling's sort of like the thing that ties all these characters together. Yeah, but it's not re. It's it's about the wrestling, but it's not about the wrestling. This show. Yeah, I mean, Glow is the name of the promotion, but obviously, what the Glow behind it actually is the double meaning behind it is that these are women getting their opportunity to shine in the spotlight, to glow, yeah. to to be creative. You know, by the end of it, the two guys in control, the guy who's behind the money and the guy who's behind the creativity, at various points bail on them. Yeah. And they, the, you know, and it's like all those, come on, guys, we can do the show ourselves. The whole thing is a let's put on a show. It's like, is the build up to them finally putting on the show. It's not to save the community center. It's no. To, it's to save this ailing thing. Like, they end up believing in Glow more than the two guys behind it do. They want to flake out and they bail on it at various points. And these are the ones, especially Alison Bree's character, She, once she gets in, she's the one that's driving it more than anything. And, and also, well, not just her, but also the one who becomes the de facto leader. Cherry. Cherry, yes, that's it. Yeah, Junk Chain, Black Magic, yeah. or, or two different names. Yeah. Where she And she even has to take on the reins. And again, that's another character that's a reflection of what was happening in the 80s. Because I think she says at one point, I, I'm wondering if it was in this show or if it was in another thing I heard recently where they stopped making movies for black people in 1979. Because <laughs> like, that was the end of the black exploitation yeah. period where people like Pam Greer were able to become movie stars and that genre that if you want to see a fantastic parody of that, just watch uh, Black Dynamite, yeah. which is amazing. But also there was Dolomite Is My Name, which I suppose is like the 
black exploitation equivalent of Glow. Yeah, I want to make two points. One to emphasise what you're saying about Cherry. It's her quest to be to be her rather than be a stunt double. Yeah, she's primarily a stunt double, and her journey throughout this and the moral quandary that's left unanswered at the end of season one is what does her having her own thing look like? She wants to be the star of something. That's why she re, but she wants to do it her way and be not a stereotype. That's why they rewrite write the beatdown biddies so it's not two black people beating up two old people it's two black people beating up the kkk yeah that's why she's conflicted at the end of the series when she's been offered a co-lead in a tv show cagney and lacy but with a black woman and a jew to quote the casting director but when you said like they that sam and bash want want to bail i don't agree with that assessment i don't think they want to bail i think their character flaws lead them to think they're doing the right thing or going in down down a deep end and they end up bailing because they're flawed i don't think it's like because they don't believe in glow it's because they don't really address their own character faults i think they don't believe in the show that they're planning to put on that night as much as the women that are making the show do okay that's what i would say i think that the women they all they want to do is make the show they don't actually really care as much now about the money anymore they just at least want to, all this work that they put in in the weeks or months that whatever this period is covering, they want it to have been worth their while. Yeah. If it all ended then and there, they'd be okay with it. Whereas Marin and the financer, they, they always saw it as something for them. It was like their own selfish goals. You know, Marin getting his movie made, the financer getting to show his mom that he can do something with his life. And also, and he does love wrestling, to be fair. And also put on his, like, dream. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. He likes the pageantry of it. I think the, the scene that sums that up more than, like, the hard work and the actual talent behind it, the scene that sums up he loves the pageantry behind it is when he has to step in as the announcer and he's like, oh, I brought my tuxedo! And then he's putting on my eyeliner. <laughs> Which is, is 80s, like, you know. Well, I was trying to remember if... I mean, it's, it might just be just he likes the glitz and glamour, but obviously there's some... A guy applying makeup to himself in the mid-80s and relishing it obviously implies something else maybe about his character and also his man is is um is butler yeah. unless he's like a member of motley crew or kiss and i can't remember from series in the, the latter seasons if that's something they explore more as time goes on because obviously mm. one of the things that i remember from the documentary is that the character that machu picchu is probably closest to representing she was genuinely in love with the director of the show which is the Mark Marin character, but instead they seem to have supplanted that onto the financier. Well, but they, but again, they don't play that up too much yet, because again, they don't, I don't. I wonder if it's so much that they can't crib too much from real life, because otherwise, someone can sue them for saying, "Yeah, you took my life and put it on screen." <laughs> yeah, but then again, well, we're we're seeing a very real playing out at the minute of another Netflix show being uh, labelled with the other end of that spectrum in The Crown and everything associated with that right now. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched any of The Crown yet. I, You know, I lived through it. I'm kind of curious with this season because it's the time that I was aware of what was happening with the royal family. Mm. And the idea of John Major being played by Sick Boy from Trainspotting <laughs> is so, so crazy to me. <laughs> Your worlds are clashing here, aren't <laughs> Yeah, that was not something... You know, in 1995, when he's taking heroin with Ewan McGregor, I'm not thinking, you know who that guy should play? 
God, imagine if you took that bit of a bookmaker back then. <laughs> but yeah, to get back to Glow, another thing as well about Machu Picchu I want to say is that that's one of the examples of them. They clearly, at the very least, did research into the wrestling world at that time. They're yeah. not just saying, you know, they name drop Hulk Hogan and in the first episode, they uh, Alison Bree's studying, she's watching Hulk Hogan and she's watching Ric Flair. Yeah. And again, it's funny now that now Ric Flair is like a cultural byword for pro wrestling. Like, it's weird how Ric Flair's way more mainstream now than he was when he was at the height of his fame in the 80s. It, it's the rise of rap as well. Yeah. Like, it, he's so what rap culture yeah. raps about. It's untrue. That's why, like, you could go... People have made the Spotify Ric Flair playlists and... They're not stretching. Some songs are literally called that. <laughs> one of them, one of them, the most famous one, Ric Flair Drip, that literally has over a billion streams on Spotify. Yeah. If people didn't know who Ric Flair was then. <laughs> yeah. Machu Picchu, her character is actually the one that does know about wrestling, and they have her be of Polynesian heritage, so obviously they're alluding to the Anawahi family. Yeah. Because there's the Tongan side and the Samoan side, and they're not actually blood relatives, but they're like... Affiliated. Yeah, yeah. That's that's awkward language, but you know what I mean. Yeah, they are a bloodline. Yes. Uh You know, when she says who her father is, and John Morrison's one-and-done character is like, oh my God! Yeah. And then he turns up, and he's giving them tips, you know, and then he's got his own sons, played by Carlito and Brodus Clay, who, from what I understand, at least one of them might have been a bit handsy with the women in the show, and that's why those characters never returned. Oh, I didn't know that. I've, I've, I haven't watched past season one before. No. Okay, sorry. Oh, that's all sorry. right. She's able to give some information about what wrestling is, and she loves it. And you wonder if maybe she was the only one that maybe knew it was wrestling going in or something. Yeah. And because she she's wanted to get into this world, but her family has never allowed her to. And because this thing's so under the radar compared to everything her family's intertwined with, this is, this is her in. Yeah, but she's such a great, not even exposition dump, but just a great explainer of, of little things. And yeah, she is the connective tissue. Yeah, I guess, I suppose. From a wrestling um, standpoint, not from the drama standpoint. She, she bridges the gap between viewer, non-wrestling viewer and wrestling viewer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and she explains certain aspects of it when she takes uh, Betty Gilpin and Melrose to the wrestling show at Reseda, where the PWG shows are put on. Yeah. And we watch Alex Riley as a sort of Bruce Springsteen-esque character. Yeah. And uh, Joey Ryan, because yeah. he always had to pop up in these things, as a million-dollar man-esque. Literally called Mr. Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> and carrying a belt that's clearly meant to be like the million dollar championship belts yeah but she gives a backstory and to be fair that level of depth was not really something that was in those sort of storylines at the time like that they were long lost brothers yeah the only time i really remember that being starting to be brought in was paul Heyman with raven and tommy dreamer being like childhood not even friends but they knew each other they went to summer camp together. Right, right. And right. um, Beulah McGillicutty was the girl that they fought over then and, and now. Ah. Although back then she was fat and Tommy kind of rejected her and now she's hot and, you know, getting her revenge. Mm. Whatever. And, and also Kane and The Undertaker, you know, your long lost brother element to it. So they took some exaggerations there. 
But it was the great way of showing what wrestling is and what people have always... I've never. It's never been something that I think even wrestling fans have denied. Yeah. That wrestling is a soap opera. Oh, yeah. I remember, what, like, if we do... The next episode we're going to do, Silver Screen Visions, will probably be Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows. And there's a scene where they're talking to the crowd before a Raw show. Um, people are saying, why do they like wrestling? And someone literally says, male soap opera. Yeah. So it's never been something that wrestling fans have hidden. No. That this is a soap opera. But, you know, for someone that doesn't know anything about wrestling outside of the fact that it's silly, and it's Hulk Hogan, I suppose, at the time, which when it, you know, it's at its cultural zenith, she doesn't get that these are stories about characters. And then when she gets it, then she, that's the moment she finally falls in love with doing something. Yes. And, and then when her husband's being snobby and dismissive of it, she's offended both for her own work, but also on on part of wrestling, and also the world that she came from, because she said that's what you said about about the soap opera too. Yeah. Again, these moral ambiguities. So, like her husband, he is a villain, but he's not a heel. He's a guy that's trying, but has has snobbery. He did sleep behind his wife's back. That is a bad thing to do. Yeah. You know, it can be an explainable thing to do, but it's still a bad thing to do. So he has villain aspects to him, but he's not. 100%, at least not at this point, not 100% the heel of the story. No. You know, which sometimes, like, even, uh, I don't want to be one of those people that says, men, 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 but sometimes some of these, like, hey, let's do the feminist versions of things. I know that you're dealing with broad characteristics, but, like, there's one character in She-Hulk that's so over-the-top broad, and I get it's a comic book show, but it's like, you almost fail at your criticisms if you make such a straw man character, you know? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, whereas this I think that character, her husband, is a great example of the patriarchy, mm. but the complexities of the people behind the patriarchy as well. Yeah, He's trying to be what he thinks a modern man is. It's not good enough, obviously, in this day and age. But in the 80s, a man even tr- wanting to look after his son, wanting to be around his son, is not necessarily something that all, you know, as Mark Maron's character shows, <laughs> it's not something they all want to be a part of. Yeah, well, Mark, Mark's obviously like that. That's a hell of a time for him to find out that information. He's he's just been told that his um, his his creative baby has basically been boiled down and reduced to Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Uh, what those two like guys he's doing cocaine with at the time. I, I had in my head, and it, it's not quite the same. But the closest parallel I've got into my head is the bit in Borat where. They show Borat, the Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee video. And it's that level of your dreams are just being like inadvertently with, with the band. It's more inadvertent, but your dreams are being squashed by people going, dude, no, look at this thing that everyone knows about, but you've not seen, you've not figured out. For Mark, it's that back to the future is because he's been so wrapped up in doing this. He hasn't realized that his basically everyone will now say for his baby his vision oh that's like back to the future and that's not what he wanted obviously borat's thing is very different but there's there's a there's a similarity there yeah what do you think of john morrison's character being removed after the first episode my guess is that they had him for the pilots Mm. but they didn't bring him back i think what the reason for that was was maybe they figured we've got too many male authority figures within the story if we do that because you've got the owner, you've got the writer, and you've got the trainer. Mm. And if you want to make it more about these women creating something for themselves, then you have to go down that path. And also, I think it also allows them to continue to have the sense of this thing 
being completely detached from the wrestling world. Uh, Magic Pichu's father and his son's coming in, and they're the only other part of the wrestling world that sort of impinge on this world. Yeah. And they disapprove of it greatly. You know, like, he describes it as, like, midget wrestling. It's a freak show. And there were, like, figures like Luthez. Luthez would refuse to be on cards with women wrestlers or midget wrestlers. He saw them always as sideshow attractions. And that's how it was like the one woman match, the one midget match to use the terms that they're using. I know they're not the appropriate terms now, but I'm just using the terms of the vernacular of the time. I don't think they disapprove of it. They just don't want to like upset their dad kind of thing. Yeah. It's very much that dynamic. (laughs) They probably know that she grew up loving wrestling as much as they did, and they probably yeah. played wrestle with her in the garden, and now they can't let her do it. Yeah. But the father, you know, he's the traditional strong. They pay it off sort of by him willing her up and that. And it's fine. It's 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 very bare bones, that. It's not the the great... And they could have done more with that, but I think Madge Pichu and the way the woman who plays it plays it so winningly and so charmingly, and she is just this kind of shy... And again... So many of these women never have the chance to shine and perform, and this is her chance. This is her chance to glow. Yeah, and the first time she tried, uh, I'm going to call it dress rehearsal. You know, she froze. So it's, it's more than that for her. It's it's her dad, like, A, approving and giving her the confidence to actually do the thing she wanted to do, because she had a chance earlier, but she froze. When you're someone who's like a, a, a shrinking wallflower, but you're the, the height that she is and you're the size that she is, you still draw attention to But you're surrounded yourself. by women who are a lot more confident in themselves, mm. I guess. But, but also, and also the guy, you know, the financer does see something in her that she doesn't see in herself. She assumes she's going to be the monster heel. And he said, what, with that smile and that face? Yeah. To be seen as like a gentle giant. You know, yeah. and that was what Andre the Giant was at that point. Maybe that's what he was thinking. She could be the female equivalent of Andre the Giant. Maybe. You know? Maybe. I, I, I just realised I didn't address one of your points earlier about why you you think they might have got rid of John Morrison. I think your point about too many male figures is right. Mm. I do think it, it speaks to the carny, for want of a better term, nature of Sam, Mark Merrin's character, because he's like, well, do I need to pay this guy? I've got someone who I know can do stunt work. This is kind of like stunt work. Yeah. Let's just do that. Yeah, the cheaper option. Yeah. And also maybe he didn't want to see another male authority figure that can rival him and someone that will be giving directions to the to the women for how they should wrestle in the ring, whereas he yeah. can be like, let them sort that out themselves and then I can control the narrative, which again, he does at the end. And that's an outsider, whereas he has a relation. Well, he's literally slept with Cherry at one point in his past. For all of his faults, he trusts Cherry. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like the level of sleaze that he's at. It's like... And also, I mean, the brilliant thing of him trying to do this really great subversive mind fuck. Yeah, you want to do your mum. And then he finds out the biggest hit movie in the world. Yeah. And how completely detached he is from that world as well, that he doesn't know what Back to the Future is. Yeah. And then he finds out the biggest movie in the world is about a guy and, and his what his mum fancy. Yeah. And he, uh, <laughs> oh, it's such a great... And, and that's obviously the moment where he finds out that the girl who he thinks is stalking him and fancies him is actually his daughter. So, like, emotionally, he's all over the shop prior to learning that bombshell. He is this, like, you know, you've seen him in this episode already just because Alison Breeze asked him, yeah. take her to a clinic to have an abortion. And he just, he plays about with her, but he also sort of tries to be supportive. He says, oh, I'm going to go and get some donuts. Actually, I'll stay here. So, you know, I figure you're going to need the emotional support. Yeah. You can tell this isn't the first woman that he's driven to one to, of these To a clinics. clinic. Yeah. But then, so you see him do that good stuff, but then you see the sleazy part of him right in that episode as well. When he goes to kiss 
what turns out to be his daughter. Before that, he says, "I don't even know if you're 18, and I don't care." Yeah, I think I think he wears his sleeves as armor. He's clearly like the one scene where you really get like a glimpse into his past when he's trying to hide his dog from his ex-wife. He, like he's been hurt. And now, now he has this this mistrust, which, as I've mentioned before, costs him on a personal level. Well, in more than one way, and it's and that's why he ends up not being able. He cares, but he ha- his failings mean he can't care as as much. He can't do it in the right way all the time. Yeah, he's a man who had his dreams and ideals. You know, he is that '60s hippie that's just looking at Reaganomic America and realizing we lost. We lost the fight. Yeah, and I don't know what to do. I might as well just smoke and take some drugs, and snort some coke, and yeah, just keep on trying to do what I can do to keep even one toe in this industry, even if it is just producing and editing a wrestling show. Yeah, you know, and again, like his version of wrestling is to put it in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, which I kind of want to see. To be honest, <laughs> do you know? And, and, do you know um, uh, what was the name of the sitcom we covered recently? Oh, uh, Deep Heat. Deep Heat, yeah. Do you remember that episode where they're in the holiday camp? Mm. And she, uh, I can't remember the lady's name, but she, she goes mad writing the script to make sure everything yeah, yeah. like makes sense because they're performing to the same audience. It's just like, well, you... T- <laughs> and the episode where, um, at the bit at the end, where the straight-laced guy is trying to like sew all the chaos back together. He's like, well, no, because you time-travelled with her cousin like three yeah. days ago, but now he's frozen in carbonite. So that doesn't make sense, or whatever it is. <laughs> he is a creative mind, and you see that again. Like, his moment to glow, as it were, in the show, yeah. is when they go to that amphitheatre... And he explains all the different ways that he's going to move the camera and everything. And Alison mm. Bree sees him. He's like, oh my God, this is an actual director. He's, this yeah. is a guy with a vision. He knows what to do. He knows things on the technicals. He says, oh, we'll put a platform there. He knows this stuff. And when he turns up whilst the show is filming, the first thing he says is, they're in each other's shots. Yeah. Like, ah! My- and, when you, and when you watch the footage, when they cut to the footage of them wrestling, you very often see the camera yeah. in the shots. Yeah. And that's like an earnest moment because it's like, ah, oh, okay, I, I, I have to park my own shit to the side a little bit and and be better for these people who are relying on me. And they hammer that point home because his daughter shows up then, and he's like, he does that awkward pat on the back of like, we'll, we'll try and, and it shows how they're actually quite similar when they actually talk to each other. I do also like that he kind of gets over it and accepts it immediately. It's kind of again like like how he's driven more than one woman to a clinic. I think he he probably thinks there's probably at least one more of you out there. So I've kind of expected this to happen at some point. (laughs) So he's kind of always thought, I guess I should drive up to the guy's house and and speak to her boyfriends and everything. That bit. I'm sorry I tried to fuck you. I didn't realise you were my kid. And the the nice house lady's there. And he's like, (laughs) do you want milk or sugar? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> such, such a great dark comic moment <laughs> that is that is one thing as well because so often comedy dramas and that is what this is it's a dramedy or whatever you want to call it the vast majority of comedy dramas always seem to be either not funny enough to be comedies or not dramatic enough to be dramas and i think this treads that line so much probably because there is such an inherent campiness in our eyes now to the 80s period yeah. and the campiness of wrestling the absurdity of people taking something like this seriously but they're also people who have you know lives and issues and you know <laughs> yeah affairs and abortions and and psychological 
fears and issues and family problems and mm. you know stereo racial stereotyping and everything the and... only way you can make a dramatic comedy is to make sure your characters are three-dimensional i recently watched uh, in bruges again and that wouldn't work with two-dimensional characters this wouldn't work with two-dimensional characters. The two-dimensionality that you get, that's not really a word, but bear with me, is the actual stereotypes. But the stereotypes are a gateway to who the people playing them actually are. Yeah, it's the 3D characters behind the 2D presentation. The, this is the show that's giving the depth. Yeah. Literally, the depth of films. Yes. It. Maybe they should have filmed this in 3D for a symbolic reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things, because I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you haven't watched the show in uh, actually past season one, because there is one episode that like 90% of the episode is an episode of Glow. Ah, okay, okay. So that'll be fun to watch as well. Yeah. So I do like that they've got that tongue-in-cheek element to it in the sense that it's not just being goofy because it's goofy, it's goofiness is trying to say something, at least in the eyes of Mark Maron's character. Yeah. And like, and, and he doesn't, and he doesn't necessarily have that level as well because like when his fan when one of the people says oh his, his film was so funny he was like that wasn't a comedy oh wrestler. Yeah. and the welfare queen character is yeah. something they really in, go into more in season two and i know in season three there's like a whole episode based around her character um and i do love that when they give these i mean the the show the episode that made me like orange is the new black although i must admit i did stop watching that after season 3 was the third episode i think which was the one that took us away from the lead character again the conventional blonde woman yeah. you know, middle class character who's like your conduits to get into it that's why i would say they're conduits they're not connective tissue they're conduits those characters the one that i realized oh this is something more this is trying to do something more yeah. deep is the, the portrayal of lauren cox's character is it lauren cox or laverne cox that was one of the first real great depictions of a trans character and you know the whole issue everyone's talking about now trans women in prisons i think that that told the, the trans narrative better than i think anything else i've seen so far to be fair i haven't seen a lot you know but of what I have seen, I think that that episode and then the continuing mm. exploits of that character were what really hooked me into Orange is the New Black for the time I watched it. I got frustrated because it built so much around the main characters, the, the, the Pipe and character, which I really thought I was kind of hoping that they would just get rid of her after season, like she served a time and she left. And then we just got to what it was. It's kind of like how The Wire, the best season of The Wire is season four, which is the one with the least amount of McNulty in it. Mm. And that's why season five felt like a step back because they brought McNulty back into the prominence of it. I thought, I was like, I think we're past this now. Yeah. That was kind of how I was feeling when I was dropping off with Orange is New Black. It's like, I think we're past uh, her character and her love affair with Laura Propon's character. Mm. Mm. But it, I don't know. Maybe it did get past that, to be fair. I, I need to rewatch. I need to catch up on it. Yeah. Now the point I wanted to make because we meant, we talked a little bit about obviously uh, Chavo Guerrero was heavily involved in in this. The gym is called Chavo's Gym. There is a credit I can't remember the exact episode, but it's in memory of Chavo Guerrero Senior as well. Well, do you know what that is as well? In the original Glow, their trainer was Mondo Guerrero. Oh, okay, okay. So that's another thing behind it. But again, they didn't do an exact like for like. Char Mondo character in the show. Yeah, the wrestling 
they, they do they deliberately make it simplistic to highlight the fact that Cherry isn't a wrestling trainer, and it's also what makes um, Zora and Liberty Bell's match stand out because they go and seek out. It's their drive to be better, despite everything they feel towards each other at the minute, and that's that that is mostly one directional. The reason they became friends most likely will be because they are they are similarly driven people. Yeah, and. And it's that it's how your love for your craft, like you can put a lot aside to make something that you love doing. Mm. And it's also funny when you compare the match that they're having to the match that Mark Maron has in his head when he watches them fight each other in the first episode. Yeah. And also the first episode points out that like these are people who aren't natural fighters. Like none of these people have been in fights in their lives. They don't like when when Betty Gilpin comes in to beat her up, she doesn't really know how to beat her yeah. up. Either. <laughs> and Alison Bree's just trying to run away. Uh, like, actually, accidentally catches her with an elbow as well at one yeah. point. I also love as well that when she's doing that and screaming with the baby in her hand, she kind of is forgetting about the baby. And the more maternal instinct, uh, Awesome Kong is like, Can I take the baby? Please, you're going <laughs> to yeah, drop this baby. Give me the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, she says at a later point, her son's in Stanford. Yeah. So she's a woman that's led a life and, you know been a mother for the whole thing mm. and now this is another outlet for her i do also love just that moment you're a big black woman excuse me <laughs> the fuck you say <laughs> <laughs> when you see mark maron's vision of them alison Bree's kind of dressed as the harlot the big lipstick and the puffed out hair and they are more like soap opera cat fights mm. like when betty gilpin puts her in the corner she's wiggling her ass around and it's much more sexualized but when it's those two that are telling the story, they're trying to make it just a fight of good and evil yeah. and a battle and playing up to more the, the nationalistic stereotypes and having fun with it in a kitschy, ironic way, but still wanting to make their thing. And as you say, when Betty Gilpin's character climbs the rope in Mark Maron's mind, it's in order for her to wiggle her ass. Yeah. When Betty Gilpin climbs right to the top rope in the actual match itself, it's to do the most spectacular move that's possible in the show. And... As they say, it's that trust fall as well, and they're mm. having to trust. She's having to trust someone who she shouldn't trust, really. That the betrayed her trust more than anyone ever has, other than her husband. Yeah, you know? and maybe it hurts more because she doesn't like her husband at th- that point, and she likes. <laughs> I think that is. I think you've nailed that there. She doesn't like her husband as much as she thought she did. She's hurt more at her Ruth's betrayal than her husband's. Her husband seems very much like she's just going through the motions, like you know you did a a bad thing go away but it's more personal with ruth well yeah she finds it harder to forgive her than she finds it to forgive her husband maybe because you know back in those days you kind of expect the husband to kind of make a dalliance and they do have a baby together and i'm not excusing that but that does cloud people's judgment well i think it's almost like when he when he kind of says you never touch me and i know it's not an excuse but it's a reason and she's kind of like ah maybe maybe if it had been any other woman yeah it wouldn't have hurt as much like for both of them, mm. you know, like if it had just been a random person, that woman that he met at the bar, it would have maybe she would have forgiven him by this point or something, perhaps, or at least gone towards the steps of she wouldn't have immediately signed the divorce papers and everything. Yeah. And he says, you know, okay, you kind of call my bluff there. <laughs> well, I, I like how he's like, well, no lawyer's actually going to let you do that because it's got this on it. So he's put he's 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 got in with this deliberate dramatic gesture, and then he's put in fail safes to make sure she doesn't fuck herself over too much yeah but it's funny that they're also in a financial tug of war i think between the two of them because he obviously has a job and he is an earner mm. you know but he also while she was on the soap opera she was probably almost certainly getting paid more than he was yeah and so there's always been a power dynamic shift between the two of them anyway 
That again, I think they address more in the later seasons. He's undermined her power by like tra- getting her to give up what she wanted, but by saying, "Oh, after you've like lost your job, let's start a family, so you can't get back up," kind of thing. We haven't really even had a chance to talk about sort of the minor supporting players, but you always felt like there's more that some of them can be given. I felt very sorry for the one, the, the other tall woman that you know she literally is an Olympic gold athlete. It seems they're my medals. <laughs> oh, it's it's when they're working through because when she refuses to work with Ruth, and they're working through other opponents for her, and she gets a hand on Betty Gilpin's character and bodies her straight yeah. away. Yeah, that's something. You get. Well, I figured, and I don't think it ever goes down that path. But I thought that the ultimate thing that would happen as the show goes on is that Betty Gilpin's character continues to take a moral high ground. And wants to be the star and wants... You know, it's, it's based so much of wrestling, even to this day, is grown men saying, nah, I can't lose to that because... I can't I can't be it because I was on Ali Bali. Yeah. Just... But it's grown-ass men in their late 30s and 40s hurling chairs at each other. You know, that was funny, actually. Uh, uh, Kenny Omega was the uh, equivalent of Awesome Kong in that moment, but uh, with a dog. If reports are to be believed, yes. <laughs> I figured that the way that it would go eventually was that she wouldn't necessarily realise that she's become the heel, both off-screen in her behaviour and, like, being the prima... Diva. Prima donna, difficult woman, obviously, which is a different, you know... Yeah. It's different levels of, you know, when a man's difficulties of genius, etc., etc. He's go, troubled. You know, and the show would probably go into that, you know. Yeah. Like, like Mark Maron's character. Like, he's more easily forgivable, even though he's a man that literally says, I don't care if you're 18. Kind of like how skin colour affects whether or not you're a terrorist. Yeah. But again, I wonder if it was going to be that thing, them reflecting another aspect of wrestling. Because like I said, they, they they are aware of things in wrestling. Like Mark Maron saying the money's in the chase. That was literally the philosophy of the NWA back in those days with the champion. Yeah, but that's also a, like... But that's... It's, it's a weird interpretation of it. And it's an unrealistic way that they do it, like something that we've changed the script and someone getting double-crossed. Yeah. It's not quite how it would happen in wrestling, but again, this isn't really the world of wrestling anyway. I mean, you can't call it a full-fledged double-cross because, like, the welfare queen goes, no, no, it's been changed. Don't worry about it. It's not like... It's not full Montreal. Of course. Well, they keep working with each other for a start. Yeah. But, again, uh, but that was, I think that was, that was Marin doing his little bit... His first bit of power play on... Liberty Bell, like, okay, she's bought in. Now I can maybe control... I've got to keep her under control. Yeah. Because I think that that's where it was going to go, was that Liberty Bell would ultimately start getting booed by the fans and Betty Gilpin not knowing how to take that. Yeah. That would be my guess that that was where they were going to go because I don't think they go that way over the course of the three seasons, or I might be wrong. But it is that sense of someone that clearly always sees themselves as in the moral right because they had something so badly done to them. But in the world, of real world of three dimensions and moral ambiguity, it's not as simple as that. People move on. Things fade. That maybe Alison is a, I don't know, a better person, but a nice person that's done a bad thing. Mm. And Betty Gilpin's a less nice person that had a bad thing done to her. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really have time to talk about the other characters in the ensemble, but they were a fun, you know, it is that sort of Muppet show thing that was Vince McMahon's vision of what WWF was in the 80s when you watch things like the Slammy Awards. Like, Glow is kind of what I think Vince would kind of have liked WWF to have been in a weird way. Yeah. Like, rapping characters and all these wild different characters. Like, Glow is the closest thing to another WWF at that time period. And the, with the tongue-in-cheek humour as well of it, that Vince clearly had more mm. uh, at that time period. Where you watch things like Saturday Night Main Event and they're doing... 
like pie eating contest. <laughs> wrestlers all in Halloween costumes. That's right, it's Wardville. <laughs> yeah, it is the Muppet Show. That was clearly a big inspiration for Vince and a, and an inspiration for Glow as well. Yeah, these wacky characters in weird dress costumes, or in the case of the Muppet Show, in weird animal yeah. designs. You know, um, and, it, and it is funny, even though like obviously they come out in something so shocking, like the KKK outfits. How like the I'm going to call them the beatdown biddies. I can't remember their non wrestling yeah. names. How they even managed to end up playing that for laughs inadvertently. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like Golden Girls sort of characters. Yeah. They're naturally just like the Statler and Waldorf of the show. Yeah. Really, like commenting on the things and prank calling and everything. Yeah. And just having fun. They're the ones that really are just there for fun. Uh, Melrose, I think, is a really fun character as well. Again, someone that they give more depth to as time goes on. The one that still... It's because it's so... It's the most out there and they spend so much time on it is the She-Wolf character. Sheila. Like, she literally... It's one of those things that now people say, oh, trans people, they identify as... Like, that whole thing they were trying to... The, did you see about that bullshit story they were trying the to... Cat like thing. The, the cat yeah. thing that isn't true. Yeah. So that was, like... I get where they're going with it. I can't remember how much further they go with it as time goes on, but it's clearly, you know, it's like Ali Sheedy's character in in The Breakfast Club, but taken to the nth degree. <laughs> you know, someone who just does not fit in in this world in any way, shape, or form, and so she just... It's, it's a funny way to go about it, but it's still so mm. detached from anyone's reality yet. There, there, there are hints. Obviously, I've not watch beyond season one but they've laid the groundwork obviously with you know uh ruth seeing the blonde underneath her wig when she mentions like oh yeah i went and bought some ice cream like oh like a, a weird wolf lady wouldn't eat ice cream. like they humanize her in little bits she's also a trivia for yes that's a great moment debbie realizes she's amongst people that she she has more in common with than she realizes when they answer the question at the same time what is a brioche yeah all these characters just gradually coming together through a shared yeah. cause. Like, and that's what's great about it. It's another way of getting, like, you know, how can you get a really wide and eccentric group of women, have them all turn up to a thing where literally the description of the on the call sheet is, you know, unusual, like, I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was just, like, unusual people that don't usually get cast in these things. That's what Orange is the New Black was. That was casting lots of actors who don't usually get the chance to do these sort of things. Yeah. Women of different shapes and sizes and ethnicities. And, again, that's what they're doing with Glow. And where would those people meet? In prison. Prison's an equaliser. Yeah. Or on a weird TV show that's being made in a little dingy warehouse and might not come to anything. And, and the equalizer is everyone wants to, for different reasons, wants to get their glow. Yeah. Anyway, that's been an epic one, but I've really enjoyed. It. Like this was such a great show, and I really, really, because I think what they could do, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did, because like Alison Brie is now in the midst of doing a, a commute. She's doing the movie. Yeah. They've got the six seasons. They're doing the movie, and now they've reported that Donald Glover's going to be involved. Oh, he, as well. he has agreed. Yeah. Oh, thank God. I don't know how much he'll be involved. Get a Chevy Chase hologram up there, and then you got the whole thing. Um... <laughs> I know, I know. But also, Pierce is exactly the sort of character that would fake his death. Yeah. So <laughs> there's always an opportunity where that would happen. Because in the Glow documentary, they do have a reunion. Yeah. Because they all went to different places, and famously, Ivory. That was literally the only wrestling she did before she went back to the WWF, I think, was to do Glow and a little bit uh, immediately after that. Okay. So you could do it, like, they could bring it back in, like, ten years' time and have them all reunite. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's feasible. And then you get to play with the 90s dynamic then as well. 
yep, of course, and they could all have gone to different places and be in different parts of their lives. Or, like I said, kind of wish that they just... Ah, that was only six months ago. Uh, <laughs> and here's your season five. Yeah. You know, maybe enough if enough of a groundswell, especially if communities are hit. Maybe she can parlay that power. Maybe Netflix can be, well, what do you want to do next? And she says, I think you know what I She gets to pick her projects now. And Alison Brie is, I think this show, Glow meant more to her than either Mad Men or Community. Because she was the lead as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, Mad Men was saying a great thing, but it was saying about men. And Community was a great thing, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's not called Mad People. Yeah, and, and Community, you know, Dan Harmon, at the best of times, kind of been easy to work with, you know. <laughs> and they said, we try not to sexualize Annie, very ironically. Yes, yes. Show. It's weird as well, because she does, like, Sort of have a will they won't they romance in later episodes with Mark Maron. I don't know what it is with Alison Brie being put with men 20 years older than mm, her. <laughs> mm. But anyway, this has been a fun conversation about a great show. And at some point in 2023, we'll definitely at least do season two. Oh, yes. And if anyone can get our, can advise us on ways to get our hands on the documentary, then we'll pick up on that one as well. But for the next episode, Simon, we're not moving away from it yet are we no we're actually going to watch some actual glow yeah we found an episode online that's called volume one episode one but it's not actually the first episode of the show but we've decided to go with it i'm just getting it up here because it just went away so we'll be talking about four matches but the match will list will probably be the main event or the first match of the show but if you look it up it's episode 22 season one i think of the show it is available on youtube is, is what my colleague's trying to say yes it is on youtube if you look it up it's got, it's listed as a uh, volume one episode one or s1 e22 if you look somewhere else so the matches on the lineup are matilda the hun in a handicap match against the california doll and ebony match two palestinia a uh, palestina sorry against Susie spirit the cheerleader Match three is Colonel Ninochka against Sally the Farmer's Daughter. And match four is Corporal Kelly and Attaché against Americana and Tammy Jones. Already there, you can sort of start to see some parallels. The world mirrors somewhat there. But before then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you to talk about Glow or women's wrestling or TV dramas or the Netflix business model... Anything they want to do. How can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter. Where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the members of his cast, which Sam en- has ended up sleeping with by the end of season one. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A at the start of Allison. N for the N at the end of Allison. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time, the balcony is closed.